And even if he bulldozes all our offices away, even if he puts more people to jail, these fundamental factors, economy, corruption, and just the fact that people are tired, will stay there and they will contribute to growing dissent and unrest and so on. Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith. And on this episode, we're focused on a global issue of democracy in Russia. And I'm joined by Leonid Volkov. He's the top aide to Alexei Navalny and deeply committed to fighting against corruption and for democracy in Russia. Navalny is, of course, now in a Russian prison, having returned to Russia after recovering from being poisoned. Volkov himself has been forced to leave the country, subject to equally false and politically motivated criminal charges. Leonid recently testified before our Parliamentary Foreign Affairs Committee, calling for sanctions against Russian oligarchs, and he and others have made it clear that continued appeasement of the Russian regime is destined to fail. With Putin enacting even more repressive measures to criminalize democratic opposition, Volkov is increasingly focused on growing the democratic movement online with the goal of influencing this fall's elections. Leonid, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for the invitation. You are in Lithuania right now, my understanding, because of charges brought against you by the Russian authorities in order to silence you. Yes, indeed, I'm now in Lithuania. They have pressed charges against me as against many of my colleagues. That's actually quite a typical way how Kremlin operates in, in, in the political area using criminal accusations against members of oppositions. We now have in Russia more political prisoners than the Soviet Union used to have ever since Stalin. So Brezhnev and Khrushchev and Gorbachev didn't have so many political prisoners as Putin has now. And many more people are in forced exile because of uh, criminal charges brought against them. You mentioned many others. Certainly many other critics of Putin's regime have faced similar trumped-up charges. And Alexei Navalny is the most visible You've been involved with Navalny since at least 2013, from what I'd read in his mayoral run in Moscow. How did you become involved with him? I'm an IT professional by my background. I was running quite a large IT company in my home city in Ekaterinburg, which is Russia's first largest city in the Ural Mountains, population 1.5 million. I've got elected to the city council in my city as the only independent member, all others belonging to Putin's party in Russia, just because I was like a little bit curious. Like my, my company was the largest taxpayer to local budget. So I wanted to know how my uh, money is being spent. And it naturally makes you an independent, actually, in Russia, if you start asking those questions. And it was back in 2009. And actually, so I met Navalny because he was also very visible and very independent on the federal level. Well, and I was an independent member of parliament of a large city. And we started to work together. Actually, we worked closely together since 2011. And indeed, in 2013, he asked me to be the campaign manager for his beat for mayor of Moscow, where he finished second, uh, nearly forcing the incumbent mayor, Sergei Sabanin of Putin's party, into runoff. This, this was remarkable because it kind of highlighted Navalny's potential as a leader of the opposition without any access to television, newspapers, radio, only using internet and social media. We were able to, to build a team of online volunteers who were able to, to deliver our message to constituents all over Moscow. 
And yes, so we got like 30% of votes of, uh, of the voters in Moscow, uh, despite all the Kremlin's propaganda that like everyone loves Putin about like 1% of national traitors. So when we got like 30% of votes, questions were very clear. I mean, why we are not represented in the parliament then at all? If if we are able to get 30% of votes in, in the country's uh, capital city and largest city. Uh, so to, to give clear answer to this question, Putin never ever again allowed Navalny or anyone senior belonging to our movement ever to be on the ballot in any elections. So they, they never allowed us to run uh, anymore. But we continued to operate as an independent political movement. We were able to expand all over the country. We've built a network of regional offices representing our political movement in 40 Russia's largest city cities, like literally from Kaliningrad to Vladivostok, all over, over all 11 Russian time zones. And we filed nine times with the Ministry of Justice to register a political party. All our attempts to register a party were denied, but still we were able to participate in local elections. We were running our anti-corruption investigations. We were gaining popularity, winning more and more supporters, gaining millions of followers on social media, most importantly on our YouTube channel. And, well, so we became a little bit too dangerous for Mr. Putin, and he decided to designate us all as extremists and to shut our organization down. So now we are a little bit like relocating our activities uh, to Europe because it would be otherwise too dangerous from, for the members of our organization to operate from within Russia as the fate of uh, Alexei Navalny, our founder and leader, actually shows when he was poisoned almost one year ago, and then put into prison when he returned to Russia back after his rehabilitation. And prior to the poisoning and subsequent imprisonment, he was subject to embezzlement charges that the European Court of Human Rights determined to be illegitimate. And yet now he's in jail for violating the probation of that original offense, which was deemed to be illegitimate. Exactly. To add to this, according to the Article 15 of the Russian Constitution, the verdicts of the European Court of Human Rights are a part of Russian uh, legal system. So the European Court of Human Rights has concluded that the embezzlement charges against Navalny were absolutely frivolous and politically motivated. And the European Court of Human Rights ruled that he has to be released immediately. This just didn't happen. So uh, Putin acted in violation not only of Russian laws, but also in violation, in direct violation of Russian constitution. Unfortunately, we have now arrived at this point when Putin could do things like this and, and go away with it. Because, I mean, he's kind of asking us, okay, okay, I'm violating everything. What would you do to me? Well, to pick up off of that and the idea that Putin can get away with anything, Navalny gave a really powerful speech in the courthouse. He said, the main thing in this whole trial isn't what happens to me. Locking me up isn't difficult. What matters most is why this is happening. This is happening to intimidate large numbers of people. They're imprisoning one person to frighten millions. He went on to say, I hope very much that people won't look at this trial as a signal that they should be more afraid. This isn't a demonstration of strength. It's a show of weakness. You can't lock up millions and hundreds of thousands of people. I hope very much that people will realize this. 
And they will, because you can't lock up the whole country. That's really powerful. And yet, in subsequent nationwide protests, authorities violently attacked and detained thousands and thousands of protesters. Russia has, as you say, declared your movement an extremist one. And you've even said that the number in January of the year, it was 12,000 people were detained. So how do you, on the one hand, say, rise up because they can't detain all of us and they can't suppress all of us? And yet Putin seems to be able to get away with suppressing and detaining thousands and thousands. That's a very good point. Well, on one hand, Putin has demonstrated that he's actually willing and ready to go far beyond expectations in terms of violence. Altogether, they have detained 17,600 people in, in the spring protests, in the winter and spring protests uh, that followed Navalny's arrest. And this, indeed, once again, is the largest wave of violence and repression in our country since Stalin times. So this, this never happened uh, during all the Soviet years after 1953, after Stalin's death. So it's, it's kind of really dangerous. On the other hand, we see that the fundamental factors that drive the protest in Russia are not gone and will not be gone. There are three such fundamental factors. One, that people are just quite tired of Mr. Putin. So he is now for 22 years there in Kremlin, and it makes people quite naturally angry and tired and upset. I mean, for everyone younger than 30, even younger than 35, no one ever existed other than uh, President Putin in, in power. And of course, they want to see some change. Second, uh, the economy is struggling. And this is, of course, because of the enormous corruption. The average household income, according to official data, decreases for eight years in a row now. So this, this is a very deep stagnation. And actually, Putin is unable to sell the idea of this so-called stability of the economical prosperity and so on, even using his very powerful propaganda machine. People just don't buy it anymore because, I mean, people feel it in their fridge, in their wallet. And the third thing is the corruption itself. So Putin has built a corruption-driven state, a corruption-driven regime, a very powerful and efficient machine of extraction of money from all types of procurement, of all trade uh, with natural resources, of oil and gas, and so on, so on. But, and this is the main legacy of our anti-corruption foundations that Alexei Navalny founded 10 years ago in 2011. We managed to educate people about corruption. When we started 10 years ago, less than 20% of Russian voters considered corruption to be a major issue. So now 60% of Russian voters think so. So it's a dramatic change because Putin can't do anything with this because corruption is a cornerstone, the essence of the regime has built. He, he can't get rid of it. And even if he bulldozes all our offices away, even if he puts more people to jail, these fundamental factors, economy, corruption, and just the fact that people are tired, will stay there, and they will contribute to growing dissent and unrest and so on. So, of course, with his violence, Putin is, well, a little bit like putting it like under the carpet, like the, the, the situation. This will only lead to the consequences 
that we've seen maybe like in, in the Arab Spring of 2011, when something that seems like a insignificant random event works as a spark that ignites everything. Because the political opposition now in Russia is not allowed to participate in elections. After we have been declared an extremist organization, anyone who ever supported us, whoever donated to us, whoever shared some piece of our content online is not anymore allowed to be on the ballot, even for a village council. So they have disqualified hundreds of thousands of people from, from just from participation in the election. So the opposition can't participate in election. The opposition can't hold rallies because people would be just, I mean, arrested, detained, beaten up and, and fined with huge fines and so on. So any legitimate tools of, well, opposition activity, of political activity, every normal tools are not anymore available. But the reasons for protest are not gone and will not be gone. These, unfortunately, only denotes that the protest will, will happen in some other forms, maybe, unfortunately, in some violent forms that we don't want. So we have already, we have always tried to be on the ballot, to compete, to participate in election, to run like petitions, online petitions, peaceful rallies, and, and whatever. Putin carefully stripped us of all these tools. Now, we do not know any other tools. And we'll continue doing what we are doing, like running anti-corruption investigations, endorsing independent candidates in the elections. Even when there are no our candidates on the ballot, still we will be endorsing independence and so on. That, but that's that's what I wanted to, to pick up on, because you say that corruption is the essence of the Putin regime. And I think that's right. And you've said in another context that fighting corruption in Russia is now being called extremism. And the movement that is really the essence of the movement that you have worked on over many years now is an anti-corruption movement. And when your movement is labeled extremists, such that there are these new police powers to target your donors, to target your supporters. On the Navalny side, you've said previously that you hope to see him released sometime in the near future. I don't know if that's a realistic possibility now. Kasparov has written, there is a real possibility that Navalny will perish during his prison term. The movement cannot die with him. Otherwise, his return to Russia will be rendered meaningless. And how do you go about continuing to build that movement in light of all of this incredible repression? And you say there are elections coming up. So presumably that's one focus. Yeah, that's very important. So we had to shut down our offline activities in Russia, as I already said. It would be otherwise too dangerous for our for the members of our movement. So we have dissolved our network of regional offices. We have shut down our office in Moscow. We have relocated many employees abroad. We used to have 42 regional offices. Wow. So with about 250 employees. We've now well, relocated many of the employees to safer places, uh, so to say. So what we have to do now, well, we have to increase the amount of our online activities so that we are able to to compensate for the loss of of the for the loss of the offline and so our anti-corruption investigations they will remain they exist online our smart voting our electoral campaign where we endorse 
in every district Z candidate that has the best chances to, to defeat, to unseat the incumbent member of United Russia. It's also an online activity. So we'll invest more into this uh, online activities well to, to, to compensate for the fact that we are not uh, any more able to, to reach out to the people through the offline tools. Right now, Russia is facing the re-election of the Duma, the national parliament, in less than three months. And yes, our main focus is the so-called smart voting. So in every district, we try to designate, we try to find out who of the candidates has the best chances to defeat the member of United Russia. And we ask all our supporters to vote for that candidate, no matter what their formal political affiliation, no matter what their views, just for the fact that this could contribute to more diversity in the parliament, to more political turbulence in the power. They call it tactical voting in the UK, so I think it's pretty much the same. Well, we invented it ourselves. We didn't pick up it in the UK, but it's quite a natural idea there. Uh, we have employed it twice with the regional elections of 2019 and 2020. In both cases, quite successful. In both cases, we managed to defeat approximately 20% of United Russian members. We managed to elect about 20% of independents in the regional parliaments, which is a lot. And now our main uh, aim is to do the same with the federal level elections to the state Duma. And on that question of smart voting, the general idea is to say, we can't get our candidates on the ballot, but we're going to support the candidates that are closest to a strong independent voice and certainly have the best shot of unseating a united Russia candidate. When you look at the history of Putin's repression, and you see the criminal charges against yourself, the criminal charges against Navalny, imprisonment of Navalny, the poisoning of Navalny. Obviously, Putin is willing to do some really incredible things to avoid losing power. Do you think there's enough of democracy in place that you are able to bring smart voting to the Duma elections without Putin saying, hang on, I see a visible threat and I'm now going to take action to stop this from happening? You are absolutely right. So there is no democracy left. And actually, Putin considers smart voting to be the most important threat. So the recent crackdown against the opposition, against our regional offices, against Alexei Navalny himself and many senior members of our movement, yeah, because those who didn't leave the country are mostly under house arrest now, because they are in Russia, like all prominent members of our movement who stayed in Russia are now, mostly, almost all of them are under house arrest. So this is all because of the threat that smart voting is posing to the stability of the regime. And still, I would say their ability to manipulate the elections is large, but not unlimited. And once again, we have managed to prove it twice during regional elections in many important Russian regions in uh, 2019 and 2020. For instance, for the Moscow City Council, where we managed to elect 20 independents out of 45 seats, so just a couple more, three more, and the independents would have the majority there. And Moscow City Council is, well, the, the second most important uh, parliament in the country after the state, Duma. Of course, 
now it will be much more challenging for us to to carry on with a smart voting when we not anymore have our regional offices, when we have to operate it from abroad. A lot will depend actually on the position that tech platforms would take, because of course they have already announced our smart voting project to be illegal in Russia, and they are asking Google, for instance to take down our videos and our website. So far, Google is not caving to those censorship requests, but they increase pressure against Google. And it's very important, like what position will Google, Apple, Facebook, and and, and the likes uh, take to to regard with it? Because uh, as I told, we have to build up uh, our activities online. So we become very much dependent on the platforms and the Russian internet censorship body is now like really very heavily attacking them. So it depends on many factors. And of course, Putin did a lot to make our task as complicated as possible. But we are also putting a lot of work into advertisement, into promoting of smart voting. We see how the number of voters who register with the smart voting grows. Like every day we, we see thousands of new registrations and of course, this tool, the power of the strength of this tool depends pretty much solely on the, on the number of the voters that agreed to follow our endorsements. And I would say, I mean, Putin, of course, can't afford to lose the election. And he will not. He has uh, the Electoral Commission under his control. He has a long track record of successful ballot stuffing and all kinds of election rigging and, and so on. So they, they know their stuff. And still, every election for a dictator like Putin is a huge stress because he can't win anything. He already has all the power, all the money, all the political authority in the country. He can't win anything. So it's like playing poker when you have to play all in when you already have won all all, all all chips on the table. It's only how much how much are you going to lose? Yes, yes, exactly. So it's still a point of stress. He can't become more powerful. He only could become less powerful when we manage to elect a few independents. Even if they elect five independents, it's an increase of five compared to the current Duma. But when you say independence versus United Russia... Given the actions to date and given the control over the Electoral Commission, if Putin sees it as a significant threat and that he sees too many losses at that poker table that are coming, he can't simply disallow individuals who are representing that sort of independent thinking. He can't simply disallow them from being on the ballot, as he's done in many other cases before. You've said previously that the final goal of our political movement is democratic change and transition. And we believe that Russia is basically a European country by its history and culture. And you go on to say being European means having working institutions, competitive elections, fair courts, independent media, and so on. But if you continue to run up against this impossible task because of the control that Putin exerts, at what point do you stop talking about democratic transition and you start talking in, in more revolutionary terms? So first of all, that's why we announce our endorsements for the candidates with the smart voting so only four days before the day of the election, when right. they can't be taken off the ballot anymore. So it's it's a big secret and a big surprise. Like uh, we come up with our endorsements in the very last few days. Second, yes, I mean, Putin is doing a hard job closing all possible doors 
to a peaceful democratic transition. Yes, exactly. We want a peaceful democratic transition to happen. We want Russia to become a European country in terms of institutions, in terms of like political competition, free press, independent courts, and so on. We have to, we will have to rebuild these institutions from scratch. We don't have any of them now in Russia. So the court system is completely flawed. The media are completely under government's control and elections are just a nightmare. But we believe it's possible. Uh, our two role models are Canada and Lithuania. <laughs> what's, what, what's common? Uh, we talk about Lithuania when we are being asked, okay, how do you believe that democracy is possible in Russia? We say, okay, look, like Vilnius looks pretty much like every Russian mid-sized city. Same buildings, same buses, same people. Same history, like the, the, the countries share like 50 years of their Soviet history with all um, those problems. And still, we see that Lithuania managed to overcome all these problems and managed to become a normal European country. Not very rich, not very successful. Still, the average salary here in Lithuania is 300% of the average salary in Russia. And this without oil and gas and diamonds and gold. So just because it's a working competitive European democracy. So it's a proof that a country with a Russian mentality, with this Arab mentality, could live by democratic rules. Now they ask, okay, but Lithuania, it's so small. So how could you imagine that a democracy would be working in a country so large and so Nordic as Russia? And they say, okay, but there is Canada, which is also large distributed across so many time zones, also very sparsely populated and also very cold in many its parts and also very diverse in terms of uh, ethnicity and language and so on. And still it is working. So what we are going to achieve is, you know, like Canada multiplied by Lithuania. And yes, indeed, Putin is closing our ways to this peaceful transition. As we already discussed, he like pushes the, the, the legitimate forms of protests under the carpet. And of course, from under the carpet, something explosive could appear. This will be his guilt. This will be his fault. We are not planning the revolution. We don't know how most of the members of our movement are lawyers. I myself am a mathematician, a computer scientist. Putin is accusing us of training people how to cook Molotov cocktails, but... Unfortunately, we didn't know how to do it. We know there will be a moment when things will change in Russia. This could be either because of the biological reason. Putin is not forever. Or because of some coup, because of some internal conflict within Russian elite, which is, which is also quite diverse. And they already have very many conflicts with each other. They need Putin as a supreme arbiter, but only while the upsides of having, having them as a supreme arbiter are larger than the downsides. Or it could be, well, a black swan type event, something very random, like the Arab Springs, when people just feel enough is enough. And, well, something happened. Unfortunately, Russian history has seen many examples of this. So our task is to be the largest and the best organized 
political force in the country by the moment of time it happens, whatever of these three scenarios. At this moment, we will have to demand, we will have to turn out to the peaceful rallies and demand for a democratic transition for a peaceful election. This is, this is our task. And that's your task as Russians who care about Russian democracy. Now I want to talk about the world's task, because to date, we have seen appeasement, I think it is fair to say. Again, to quote Kasparov, but he has said, time is running out to change the course of this story. And he's been very critical of the European Parliament in readmitting Russia, the UN Human Rights Council with Russia's member, President Obama's reset. And he has said the roadmap is clear. Sanction Putin and his cronies completely out of the free world. Stop funding his repression and his invasions and his murders. Support the rule of law and divest from dictatorship. Is the world's obligation here fundamentally sanctions? I think so. And this is also what Alexei Navalny thinks. He has put together a list of 35 closest Putin's cronies, associates, when he left from Germany for Moscow after his rehabilitation. He published this list, and I think this list is of a very large importance indeed. Putin's despotism is not for, for despotism per se. He is not cruel for being cruel. He is money-driven. He is a small guy who cares a lot about his personal wealth. He has channeled and siphoned hundreds of billions of dollars through the network of his close friends, his schoolmates and Dutch neighbors to the West. Russia is the largest exporter of corruption in the world. Putin's friends are all billionaires. And we have the lists. You hardly could find a bank account labeled Vladimir Putin anywhere in the world. He's too smart for this. But we know that those 35 names on the accounts actually correspond to the name Vladimir Putin. These are actually his wallets and his assets stolen from Russian taxpayers. And instead of doing the appeasement, which indeed is always failing, we ask the world, yes, to go after this money, to to take them hostage, to use them as a leverage against Putin, to use them to force concessions and civil rights and legalization of political opposition in Russia in conducting free and fair elections and so on. We don't expect that the world will resolve all our problems. We know that the change in Russia could only happen from within Russia. But a feasible and realistic help that the world could give is to go after those assets, to freeze them, and to use them as leverage for political change in our country. And we are ready. We are ready to compete in an election. We, we know how to campaign. We know how to win votes. We know how to defeat uh, United Russia if we are allowed. And we believe that legalization of political opposition in Russia could be achieved using these personal sanctions as a leverage. And we're not talking general economic sanctions because you've said previously these are counterproductive and actually increase support for the Kremlin. But these targeted sanctions, we in Canada have the Magnitsky Act. Canada has sanctioned nine Russian officials. But before recent testimony to our Foreign Affairs Committee, you've said that list is a weak one. Why do you see it that way? And if you were to prioritize those 35 names, who should we really be focused on? Canada has sanctioned the nine officials along with European Union, UK, and US. And these nine officials are mostly 
like security forces officials who are responsible for the poisoning and the murder attempt against Alexei Navalny. It's important as a symbolic gesture, but of course, its influence is only symbolic because these security forces guys don't travel abroad, don't have assets abroad. They actually are forbidden to travel abroad. They don't have travel passports at all. So it's, it's, it, it eventually has only a symbolic meaning. We suggest to sanction Putin's nominee uh, asset holders. So the, 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 the holders of Putin's wallets. And yeah, so the, the list of 35 names could be prioritized by their personal net wealth. <laughs> because like uh, as as larger as the wealth, as, as the, the more important they are for, for Putin, uh, the, the more important assets they keep, Abramovich, Usmanov, and others. And yes, you are absolutely right. Sectoral sanctions are counterproductive because they only help Kremlin's propaganda machine. They could say, okay, the evil West is working hard against us. We have, we have to blame or our, all the problems of our economy on these Western sanctions. And of course, we all have to unite to reinforce our leader, our national leader, Vladimir Putin, because he is the only one who could protect us from the evil NATO from America and their puppets with their sanctions and so on. That, that's the usual rhetoric. They can't do the same against personal targeted sanctions against Putin's oligarch friends. You said before the Foreign Affairs Committee, it's well known where Putin stashes the loot that he actually stole from Russian taxpayers. The names of the holders of his assets are well known. And it's those individuals, the oligarchs, that you want the world community to go after and in particular, the UK. And I, and I take that to mean, based on the knowledge that you have and, and the information that you've been able to compile, that most of the money that the oligarchs hold on their own behalf, but also on behalf of Putin, are in the UK. Well, not all of them, but yes, the majority. The majority. For some reason, Bill Gravia and Mayfair are of particular love. Uh, for for Putin's friends, I don't know why to intimate this connection, but it's just a historical fact. Well, Leonid, I really appreciate your time. And if there's anything on the Canadian side, I will engage with Global Affairs, of course. But if there's anything else, I, I hope it's a continued conversation we can have. You know, reach out at any time. But uh, if there's any way that we can assist here in Canada, don't hesitate to reach out. Thank you so much. And thank you very much for following the events in Russia so closely and for actually doing this work on sanctions for the cooperation with, with US and UK and European Union. We really believe that a lot could be achieved uh, for peaceful democratic transition in Russia, also with the support of our friends all over the world. Russia, Russia belongs to the well, to the Western civilization. That's our very deep feeling, our very deep understanding. And it will get there. But every other year of Putin in Kremlin is a year of stolen opportunities for Russia, for Russian people, for the world economy also, to have Russia as a large market and an important international trade partner as well. We believe this will come to an end sooner than later. We will put all our efforts for this to happen sooner than later. And yeah, let's move on. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. 
I'll tell you, sitting here in Canada as an active participant in Canadian democracy, one obviously reads about the challenges that activists and organizers for democracy face in other parts of the world. But speaking to Leona directly, and it certainly made me pause as a reminder not to take what we have for granted. As always, I hope you'll join me for future conversations. You can subscribe at uncommons.ca or your platform of choice. Leave a positive review if you like what we're doing, shameless I know. And otherwise, until next time.